0: Hello and uh, welcome everyone. I'm sure you're going to have lots of questions to ask the guys, but I thought I'd kick in with a few questions myself. I mean, first things first, I mean, obviously, Australia has taken Red Dog to its heart. The response has been extraordinary, and you've had an amazing week yourself. I mean, you've just gone over the 21 million mark, and last night you won seven IF Awards. How does it feel to... I mean, did you expect this? How have you... I mean, how great is the response from the public to your film?
1: It's uh, magnificent. I mean, you really... uh, You know, obviously, as a filmmaker, you want to um, have as many people see your film as possible. But I've learned... I mean, Red Dog's my fifth film, and um, uh, I've learned not to have any expectations. So I deliberately kind of kept a a very cool uh, uh, and kind of reserved expectation on Red Dog, but it's gone way beyond what I ever thought it would ever do. Um, And to be in the top 10, all-time top 10 of Australian films is just mind-blowing. And last night was just, you know, icing on the cake. I mean, getting to make the film was a fantastic gift and a fantastic opportunity, and then having it do so well at the box office was just a fantastic prize. And then the rest of it's just a lot of fun.
0: And obviously, I think one of the great things about the film is how there's such an obvious love for the Australian countryside and the locations of Western Australia. I mean... Number one, how did you find such beautiful locations and and what kind of challenges did that bring filming them there?
1: Well, um, Nelson Wass, who optioned the book, uh, Louis de Bernier's book, Red Dog, um, you know, I think one of the things we first spoke about when we uh, talked about making the film was that we wanted to make a film that was a period film, uh, like the book, and the book itself is based on a true story about a real part of Australia... That existed and still exists, and it's an extraordinary um, area, uh, and it's relatively unchanged since since the 70s, from when's the sto- when the story is shot, and it's completely, overwhelmingly cinematic. It's just unbelievably beautiful. Um, even this kind of collision of uh, the man-made industry there, um, contrasting with this incredible natural beauty, it's just it's just so visually um, stunning. I mean, I I, I was. The most stressful thing about it was that there was just too much to shoot. And every day my shot list got longer because there was just too many fantastic angles. <laughs> it was kind of overwhelming.
0: And, and John, as an actor, obviously being out there rather than being in a studio, that would have helped your performance no um, end.
2: Definitely, definitely. It was, a, it was an amazing place, first of all, for someone like myself who'd never been uh, to that part of Australia, far northwestern Australia. But also the places that we shot in, in Adelaide were... Um, great as well so we were used we were in Adelaide for five weeks before we moved up there uh, and Adelaide was wonderful as well getting out of the tell you a, a great story that turns me into a little bit of a simpleton um, but I'm going to go with it anyway I got out there in in Dampier and around that area the lot of landscape is a whole lot of rocks and just rocks on top of one another and I said, oh, that's great, but a little bit sad that that's what, you know, that's what the industry has done to the landscape out here. And that's when the people said, no, no, that is the landscape. It's just rocks everywhere. And they're all being pounded on one another for millions of years. And that is a sensational, stunning thing to see that's our country. So, yeah, it was much better than being in a soundstage, definitely.
0: And Nelson, I mean, as a producer, did you always envisage, envisage the film being shot on location?
3: Yeah, um, there was a period of time when I was developing the, the, the movie where an American studio was interested and they were quite keen, to, they wanted to make the movie and they would have given us more money than we actually got to shoot the movie but the, the deal was we had to relocate to Texas and uh, we weren't going to do that. I wanted to take it back to um, the Pilbara and, and it's a true story and to do it in an authentic way we had to shoot it there. Can I just get an indication of the people who are here today? Can you just show of hands? Who's actually seen the movie? Right, all of you. OK. <laughs> so you've seen it in cinemas, obviously. And is it possible that you'll see it on a, on a computer? Is that realistic? Or not? All
2: right. I see some pe- heads nodding. <laughs> yeah. Heads are nodding.
3: We're in the wrong store.
2: Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, oh we
0: got a quick call oh, there. It's uh, agent.
2: So, saying they see you in the Apple store.
0: <laughs> so, Nelson, uh, you were the guy who commissioned the book. I mean, what was it about the story that attracted you in the first place?
3: I didn't commission the book. I read, commissioned the, film I, on I the, read book. the book and I commissioned the screenplay. And uh, I'm originally from Western Australia. So th- this story takes place in, in, in the backyard where I grew up. So I wanted to tell an Australian story about heart and spirit and uh, I saw it as a great opportunity to put a team of filmmakers together and was very, very lucky to to, to, to assemble this man, who, who creatively led it, and uh, a, a fine ensemble cast that John Batchelor was a part of.
0: And, yeah, talking about the cast, I mean, obviously, apart from Coco, you've got a wonderful human cast there, so can you talk a bit about the casting process? I mean, maybe, obviously, the wonderful John here, but also... Uh, Josh and Rachel and how important was their chemistry in how the film was going to work
1: yeah well we, um, we were in a fortunate position uh, when we made the film that we had a little bit of lead time we got financed and we had to wait for about six months for the weather uh, and that allowed us time to cast the film very carefully and as a director I think 99% of directing is casting if you haven't cast the film right no amount of brilliant direction will save you you either get the right person for the job or or you're stuffed. So we worked very closely with Christine King, who is a casting director. And the great thing is about having time to cast is you can get to see a lot of people. And if you're not in a rush, uh, you can have the time to kind of try out different characters, different actors for different roles, swap them around. So we were able to cast very mercurially. And it was an ensemble script, and that was one of the things that really attracted to me, attracted me to the script and to the film in the first place. The fact that it was a, it was a film about communities, and uh, we um, we slowly sort of pieced it together. But it's a bit like a Tetris game casting because as the closer you get to the shooting day, uh, there are certain gaps that are left open because you haven't found the role, and very quickly the shoot date looms. Um, and right up until we shot, we didn't have our lead. We didn't have John, who Josh Lucas eventually played, we didn't have him. So we were sort of casting, it was quite nerve-wracking toward the end, you know. Uh, And Rachel came on at the very last moment so she was, you usually cast your male lead first and then your female lead, so we cast the female lead first. So it was nerve-wracking. It gets into a very, you get into a very tight corner.
0: So Nelson, as a producer, how was this uh, last-minute casting for your general well-being? Um... well, it, it was somewhat
3: unorthodox because uh, two, we, we had an actor, I, I think I can say the name, we had Guy Pierce, he was going to play John, and I raised the money based on Guy Pierce And he dropped out two weeks before the shoot, uh, sorry, two weeks before pre-production, and we decided to keep going. And then we got Ewan McGregor, which we, th- we thought uh, he'd be pretty good playing John. Uh, he's good in remote locations, and he, he knows how to ride a motorbike. Uh, <laughs> And then he dropped out about two weeks before we started shooting. Uh, and we actually started shooting without a lead actor. So when this movie started, I had long blonde hair. Now now <laughs> my hair's dropped. What, what, it's all fallen out, and what's left is grey. But uh, it all... You know, it's a funny thing about making movies. We ended up getting Josh last minute, but I think it worked better than any of the other people that we potentially... Uh, cast, and also he was so fantastic with the other actors, I mean you all got along, didn't you? I mean it was really...
2: Oh yeah, yeah, and his first scene, his first scene that he did for us was the, the um, scene to Nancy proposing on the back of the ute, and by the end of that night he had all of us in the palm of his we, we hand. We knew
3: instantly we had our John. A, a funny story about Josh you might like is uh, he flew in and we'd been shooting for two weeks. And we were shoot. We started the interiors. We shot them in South Australia, and then we had to move to the outback in Western Australia. And Josh sort of sidled up to us. I'm not sure if you remember that day, and he- and he sort of said, "Listen, I've got to discuss my uh, transportation uh, from Perth to the to to, to um, Dampier." And we were a bit nervous. We thought he was going to demand uh, uh, a Learjet. Bit- Learjet or private... <laughs> And I said, Look, mate, we're on it's in a low budget Australian movie. We're all flying economy, and you are too. And he said, No, no, I'm not flying economy. I want to drive. And I said, I said, I said, mate, I don't think you understand. It's going to take you almost two days to drive. And he said, Not only do I want to drive, I want to take your car. So he drove my car, he smashed it up and scratched it. But he did drive all the way up and and, and he got to meet the people and he saw the West Australian landscapes and he really connected. It did take him almost a week. Um, But I think it was really important for his performance because by the time he got there, we all flew. We stayed in South Australia and did more prep for the shoot. But he he did this week-long drive. And by the time we met met up again, he, he knew more about Western Australia than I did and I grew up there.
0: I mean, John, I mean, in terms of your preparation for the role, I mean, did you do much?
2: Uh, I did a lot of knitting. Um, <laughs> I had to do a lot of knitting because I, I had to be an expert knitter.
0: It's actually, true. I
3: remember looking at the bills, the production bills, and we had to hire a knitting coach for John.
1: Actually, no, no, no. The reason why I cast John was that when he turned up to the
2: casting, he was already knitting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He turned up to the Always audition prepared. knitting. It was like, this guy is... Prepared, committed. My, committed. my wife taught me how to knit for the audition. And I did see Kriv's eyes light up as I pulled the knitting needles out. <laughs> it was like, you can knit. So like, please, can I knit? Oh, I may not be able to act, up. but I can knit. Um, and I was very nervous. You know, it, the, the person had to really know how to knit. Yeah. It was very important. <laughs> and my, my knitting coach from Port Adelaide was this little, um, I think she was a Romanian lady, who was amazing she scared me because she had knitting down, like she could talk like this and, and knit a sweater in about five seconds. And then I'd finished doing my thing for about two minutes and she'd go, "Hmm, good. Very I, hard.
3: I actually have the little, uh, the red outfit that you were knitting for, for the dog. We should actually audition, uh, we should auction
0: that for charity. Yeah,
2: definitely, a red nose day. Oh, I found, I found that in the garage.
0: So obviously you're, you're doing a lot of prep for the film and you said how like Josh was driving for two days. I mean, what kind of prep work did you do for the film? Crib because I understand you did a lot of storyboarding for this.
1: Oh yeah, you know, it was a film that we, you know, even though, um, you know, we had a finite budget. It was a very small budget for the kind of film we were making. It was a very ambitious film. It was a period film, which is, is just so, you know, that adds so much more complexity and uh, difficulty and cost to what you're doing. Um, We also had, you know, these incredibly complex sequences of the dog and the cat fighting. We had these montage sequences, had these very critical kind of scenes. So it was a real, it was a real, um, it was a very, it was a big movie for um, a very little amount of money. So obviously, when you're in that situation, preparation is everything. Um, You know, that's when you really make the film in pre-pro. And Nelson and I, again, we had the advantage of having a, a long lead time. So. I started storyboarding at a very early stage and showed Nelson the storyboards and we sort of talked about them and so by the time we, sh- we started to shoot we had this very, very uh, definitive plan. Because I think storyboards are great in that um, they allow you to shoot off the board more than shoot the board because you've always got something to return to. So in a way like by storyboarding it, it's sort of it's the first pass. And uh, and then when you shoot it, you can kind of add to it or dilute it. But you've got to have it there in the first place. And it solves a lot of problems and everyone can see what you're doing. So it makes every department kind of know where they're going. Beginnings and endings are the most challenging things to get right. Um, even in the edit, you know, beginnings are always really hard to kind of lock down. But when you shoot, I've made the mistake a couple of times of in my previous films of sort of shooting Um, a beginning but with only one kind of way to cut it. So it's good to sort of storyboard that and know that that's what you're committing to but then know what your options are in the editing room. You've got a chance to maybe... Maybe that's not the way to start the film because when you start making a film you have a very particular idea about what you're doing but by by the end of the shoot and especially when you get into the editing room it's completely different. So it's great to have those options. So the storyboard would just allowed us to go, well, this is what we definitely need and then how we can kind of deviate from that.
3: I 100% agree with you. It was, we needed to know roughly what line we were going down, but we were always open on try, to trying something different. And in fact, this director here is, should be recognised that he shot more footage than Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge on Red Dog. So we covered it, we did a lot of coverage and we had a lot of options and it was the best thing ever because when we are in the editing room, we really did have a, a lot of ways to go. But we always had that core
0: line if we needed it. And I, I guess as a producer as well, at least you're seeing what's going to be happening so it gives you a bit more faith that, you know, what shots you're going to be going for. Yeah.
3: It's unusual, most producers don't know what's going on. I, I think I had a reasonable
0: idea on this one. <laughs> and uh, Another great thing about the film, apart from the location, I thought was the music and the choice of the music. So, firstly, Nelson, I mean, when you saw the list of tracks that Creve wanted for the film, uh, you got like Pete Townsend and practically every classic Aussie rock number in there. Were you terrified at the prospect of how much this was going to cost to get the rights?
3: No, I, look, the, good, the wonderful thing about Creve and I is I think we have very similar taste in music. and. Um... I, you know, I think we both set the bar really high on this one. We, wanted, we knew that the movie had to connect with Australian audiences and there was a lot of emotion with the film and music and film work well together. And I think the tracks that we chose really worked well in the film. So we had a budget uh, and we just went, we, you know, like, like everything on this film, we worked really, really hard and we were very, very passionate. And I think some of the musicians that own the tracks picked up on the fact that it was a good story and that there was a great team working together and uh, they trusted us
0: and went with our choices. And crew, can you talk a bit about why you chose some of the particular tracks in the film?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the thing was is that Dan, Daniel Taplitz, who wrote the screenplay, the music was in there right from the very beginning. It was in the script. Not necessarily those exact tracks, but what I loved about it was that, you know, I mean, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, I was a kid, a teenager. And those songs are very, uh, very evocative of a time. You know, they're like little mini time machines. And, um, and they just really help. I think sound is 50% of the impact of cinema. I mean, f- images really are work in tandem with sound and with music. And when you have that perfect fusion of music and image together, it's just brilliant. You know, I think you can really create um, uh, s- magic with that. So the songs were very, very important, very critical. But at the same time, you know, when you're cutting a film, a track that you think and the script is perfect, when you see it against the, the images and the rhythm of the film, you go, well, that doesn't really feel right. So we had we had like kind of primary, secondary, tertiary options for each song, and sometimes there were creative decisions why we use them, and sometimes they're purely financial like there were some tracks that we wanted to use that we couldn't A, afford, 4, that we couldn't get the permissions for, but there was always another track that could replace it. But, you know, Nelson and I were continually swapping CDs, so by the time we got to the edit, we had this kind of list of music, and it was really fun just trying, you know, trying this track against that scene and, and then going, we've got to get that. And then Nelson, to his credit, and with Kim Green, uh, our music um, our licensor... Supervisor... Uh, supervisor Did an amazing job at getting these incredible deals, like getting the Peter Townsend track for you know, not nothing, but you know, a relatively good price. Yeah.
3: Um has anyone seen the soundtrack or listened to the soundtrack? Well, you probably the other thing that you probably would acknowledge is uh we had some amazing original music that was composed by Cesare Skubieski, who's a Melbourne-based composer, and uh, what you might be interested to learn is we only had two weeks to do all the original music. So he created that from scratch
0: and he recorded it in two and a half days. So, And obviously the, the main reason why people are loving the film, apart from everything else, is Coco, who we're going to meet, meet in a few minutes. So I was wondering, can you just talk briefly about the process of finding that dog? Because obviously it was incredibly important that you found the right dog for the movie.
1: Yeah, well, it's really... It's almost exactly like trying to find an actor.
0: You know, we, um, except this time we had to
1: do a lot of driving. Uh, <laughs> uh, we had to go to him rather than them coming to us. And um, we found Coco... Uh, the, the problem was is that we would find a dog and Luke Hura, who trained Coco, um, who was a, a dog trainer, uh, we, he would need about a month to sort of really work out whether a, the dog was able to be trained in this very specific way that it needed to for the film. And we had a couple of false starts. We sort of found potential red dogs um, who after a month, Luke just said, look, I really think we're in a world of pain here with this dog. We, we just can't go on. And then we eventually found Coco in Bendigo. Was it in Bendigo? or um, Victoria. Victoria, yeah. And I remember the day we saw him and he was a beautiful dog. Like really, I, automatically I just, he had that X factor that you look for And he had this kind of fantastic, sort of concentrated energy about him. And his tail was up, which was great. Because we we really wanted Red Dog to have this iconic up-tail look. And he had all of that. And, uh, you know, just his face, when I framed it up in a close-up on my little camera, it kind of, you know, it sort of jumped out at you. And it's the same thing you look at with a human actor. You know, whether they've got that that, that X-factor, and then uh, you know, Luke spent a month with him and he gave me a call and said, look, this is the dog, he's amazing, he's just fantastic, and you know that was great, you know, we finally found our, our star. It's so nice to
3: see Coco in those early days because uh, he was so untouched by fame, but now he's become quite difficult, and he, <laughs> he, he, he was rather well-behaved well back then, but uh, he, he's, he's a little upset at the moment because the film won seven awards last night and he didn't get one, so he's going to need he's going to need a lot of encouragement if you want him to get a, to come out here tonight. So
0: yeah, so please uh, put your hands together, bark, woof, and whatever you want to do, and please welcome Coco. So uh, now it's time to, for you guys to ask some questions. So please uh, put up your hands. I think we've got a couple of roving mics walking around. So. Uh, Hands up for the first question. Yeah, back on the dog, was Coco his original name or was that the screen name you put in there and he had to work to that? No,
3: he was originally called Coco. He's always called Coco. So you,
1: you had to change the script to, to, to the name of the dog, obviously. No, the name right. of the... the, the he Coco.
3: plays Red Dog. There really yeah. was a red dog in the 1970s right. and Coco plays the part of Red Dog.
1: Right, so he's, he's Coco is
3: his name. Coco, Coco is his name. He's uh, just over six. Six years old.
0: And what do you feed him on?
3: He, uh, he has a very strict diet of actually special dry food um, because he particularly likes that. Coco actually has a very sensitive stomach.
2: Is there a program
3: for uh, overseas distribution? Yeah. We're, um, re- we are releasing in the UK in January. That's our first big international market. The film's had a terrific run at film festivals around the world. This is played in Korea... USA, it's won festivals, it's won two festivals in the UK now and we expect it to come out in America mid next year and it actually won a festival in Indianapolis about three weeks ago called the Heartland Film Festival and it played to 2,000 people in Indianapolis um, and we really got a terrific reaction so we have our fingers crossed that we're going to get a great result in the USA.
0: Are you you looking at a different way of marketing the film overseas? Because obviously it's a very Australian film and Aussies do love films about Australia, whereas yeah. pitching it to England or the States, are you looking for a different way to market the film?
3: Uh, look, it's quite funny. the way we, w- When we started marketing the film in Australia, the, the film came out in August and uh, we had hoped that one of our stars would come and promote the movie. We were hoping that Josh would come out, but he was busy doing a Clint Eastwood movie. And Rachel Taylor was shooting Charlie's Angels in the USA. So all we had to promote the film was Coco. And that turned out okay. Um, So we've realised that when it comes to marketing, it's all about the dog. And I think that's going to be the strategy for overseas. I'm curious to know if Red Cat was played by a real cat and if Coco really became mates with that cat. Um, Red Cat was actually trained by my daughter. And uh, yeah, it is a real cat. He, uh, he was, he's a very good cat, loves dogs, doesn't, get, you know, doesn't have any problems with dogs, and uh, they, they were fine, they were absolutely fine. There was no animosity between them, there was no ego problem between them. They were two very,
0: very professional actors.
3: Everyone on the set loved Coco. As you can see, Coco likes being around us, and he was the, he was the mascot of the movie, but the cast and crew and myself were all scared of the cat, and, and we kept him in the far corner of the set and, and stayed, stayed well away from him. Hi. Hello. The
2: movie was fantastic, but is it on in Sydney anywhere at the moment? I think,
3: I think you, have to, you have to... It's now on 90 screens across Australia, so I'm, I'm sure it's somewhere. It's on the Hayden Cremorne. It's been out for 17 weeks, so um, you have to seek out the cinemas that are left. Uh, or it's coming out on DVD on um, December 1st. So and it's going to be a ter- it's a terrific DVD. We worked really hard on all the special features. So it's actually packed with a lot of extra material and some of the footage that Crew shot that didn't make it in the movie.
1: Hi, uh, I just want to say uh, thank you very much for the film. I enjoyed it very much indeed. And uh, just wondering if there's any uh, new project coming out that uh, we can look forward to.
3: Yeah, you mean a Red Dog project, or just projects that the filmmakers are working on? Do you want to talk about your projects, or...? Uh,
1: yeah, look, you know, Nelson and I are working on a couple of ideas, and, uh, you know, we're really interested in making a children's film, but, like, a, you know, a, a big children's film, uh, and there's an idea that we're looking at now, and uh, there is talk of a sequel, um, but, uh, you know, it's early days. Early days.
3: I think what was terrific about Red Dog is we assembled a team of filmmakers that really worked well together. And we made, you know, Red Dog's a story. The real Red Dog was a story. He brought the community together and this film project brought all of us together. And and it's really my mission now to find another project where we can all all work together again because that's what we want to do. We, We had a terrific, I think if you watch the movie you can see how much fun the filmmakers had making the movie. And we
0: would like to have that experience again. Yep. So, John, I mean, can you just talk a little bit about your experience on set making Red Dog? Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, I had a great
2: time. I was there for the full eight weeks of the shoot. Um, and uh, we, like, like the guy said earlier, the, um, the entrance of Josh coming onto the set was a little bit late, so we had to shoot a few scenes where we were talking about John and we had absolutely no idea who we were talking about. Uh, which is funny, <laughs> and a great you know great little stretch of your acting muscles, um, but yeah, definitely the the crew that we assembled were a great group of people, uh, actors and uh, the cast and the crew, uh, and we desperately hope that we'd be able to work together again and and make something that Australia has grabbed onto so well and so uh, full of. You know, love for this project as much as what I think when it first started off. As Dan's script, uh, it started off as a great, beautiful story, and these guys helped bring that to life. You know, and kept that heart going through it, uh, which is why I think it. You know, Australia has grabbed onto it, and hopefully, the world.
0: Could someone tell me a little bit more about your um, the equipment you've used to make the film? Um, this will be sound a little bit corny, but. Um, have you used a red camera as as as, as part of the um, crew? Because you've got the guy just over there with that really small um, digital movie sort of camera, so it could be that, or it could be uh, using, say, the, the big end um, 35mm. No, we digital we cameras. we actually
1: shot the film on red cameras. On the red, we shot it on. Uh, we actually shot on a combination of cameras because obviously shooting this film on film would have been crippling. Uh, We had the advantage of digital, obviously, is you can shoot without the tyranny of film stock. Uh, So we could shoot a lot of footage of both the cat and the dog and and, uh, and Coco with two cameras a lot of the time. So we used Red 1s, the Red 1 camera. We actually used one of the very early first Red 1 cameras. We didn't even use the Mysterium X cameras. And we had an amazing DOP, Jeff Hall, who uh, calibrated the cameras to look virtually like 70mm film when we graded the film down in Adelaide we graded it on a big movie screen so we were watching the film properly in the right scale, with the right colour frequency and hardened DOPs who'd grown up in film couldn't believe that this was a red camera they said, this really looks like you've shot on 70mm and then a lot of the um, we had a, th- a second unit and a third unit uh, and the third unit was shot on that camera there it was shot on a 7D uh, we, used, we used that to do a lot of the travel montage stuff of Red Dog traveling all over, um, you know, Northwestern Australia. So it was a combination of uh, formats. Um, and as I said, we couldn't have done it any other way. And the Red was an amazing camera. And as a director, I've, I've trained as a cinematographer. So my background is cinematography. I went to film school and I trained as a DOP and I've shot and directed short films and music videos and TV commercials. And I love film, I've grown up on film. But um, having shot digital now, I'd never go back. It's such a beautiful way to work. It's great for the actors, it's great for the crew. Everyone gets into a rhythm. You're not having to break every time for a take. You can hold the role. Everyone stays concentrated. It's much more efficient. You're directing off a high-definition monitor, which is just a wonderful way to work as a director because you're seeing everything there. You're not seeing it through a fuzzy video split. So it's just, it's just um, a, great, a great medium, and it's the only way we could have made the film.
0: A crib you mentioned there about getting coverage. I mean, was Coco a one-take wonder, or was each scene a long, drawn-out process to get the shots you wanted to get?
1: It, it varied. It was um, Coco's probably the most unpredictable actor I've worked with. Uh, some days he would get it one take. We'd just, it would just be amazing. And some days, you know, it took us a long time. And even some days we had to come back and reshoot. Um, but most of the time we got there, we actually ended up getting the shot we needed either directly or over a period of time but you know we got into a system as well where we knew what we would what do is we'd shoot a scene and we'd shoot out every angle of all the actors and then we would bring Coco in right at the very end so uh, we knew exactly what we wanted where the camera was and that worked out to be a really great way to work because Coco is very—he's a very sensitive animal very sensitive soul and um, he uh, doesn't like crowds or loud noises that much. I mean, I'm amazed at him tonight. He's very relaxed. But when we were shooting a lot of those big pub scenes with people yelling and screaming he was a bit freaked out. So we had to the funniest thing was having all these burly blokes going, okay we have to do it mute and everyone going and that was the only way we could get this stuff done. So it was quite funny. (laughs) Sorry to ask another technical question but just how you were talking before about editing how you are free to have you know, you had the plan story, but you also had the freedom to, to make other decisions in terms of shots. Um, did you find that difficult, having so much material in, in the editing process? Um, no, because we had an amazing editor. We had an amazing woman by the name of Jill Bilcock who actually cut Moulin Rouge. Um, she's worked... She cut uh, Strictly Ballroom and uh, Romeo and Juliet, so she worked with Baz Luhrmann. She's worked with some amazing filmmakers uh, in in her lifetime. She's a veteran and she was very, you know, very good at uh, distilling the footage. And you know, a lot of it was, when we say we shot a million feet, a lot of it was, you know, just waiting for the dog to do something. So that's why there was a lot of footage. It wasn't like there was, uh, you know, a lot of, that many choices, there were choices, but it was just the physicality of having to kind of keep rolling to get the moment. Um, and then when the moment's there, you really know it, you know, and then you bol- boil that down and you it, you distill it down into a series of choices. And then it's choices on top of choices. And then very quickly, the perfect take presents itself or the best option presents itself. So it's just a process of elimination. But with someone like Jill, who is a consummate filmmaker herself, she's a very, very clever woman, she was able to sort of really craft the film rhythmically. And she really, owes, she really deserves a lot of credit for getting the film to the level it is at because it flows like, it's got this beautiful rhythm to it and that's all Jill, you know. She really made choices on top of mine.
0: Cool, well, uh, thank you so much and I think that is our, our time up, so uh, can we, please- uh, we just wanted,
3: as the filmmakers, we wanted cool. to say, first of all, thank you for coming uh, today. Uh, we announced something last night that was very uh, important to us. Uh, Coco's been fantastic and he's done a terrific job and worked so hard on this movie, and he's travelled all around Australia, not just to the capital cities, but all the regional locations, uh, promoting the movie for the last uh, three months. And last night, we announced he's retiring. So he's, he's going back to Perth just to be a dog. And you're a very, very special audience. Um, you're the last public appearance ever for Coco. So we were just wondering if you could wave him goodbye. Thank you. Thanks for coming.
0: And also, please thank Kriv, Nelson and John and Luke. Thank you. And thank you for coming.